Well, Ron, thanks for uh, the introduction. Breeshan, thank you for leading us this morning. I don't know if Breeshan's still in here. Hey, man, thank you, dude. I love every chance we get to partner together. Uh, and brings so much energy. I always tell him, I'm like, dude, I, you, one day you're going to pull a hammy leading people in worship. I know it's going to happen. But what I also tell him and what I believe, I, what I love so much about Breeshan, he is gifted vocally. He loves to sing. Yet he's also a guy that every time I hear him lead people in worship, I think he believes every word he is singing. And when someone's leading me in worship, I want it to be a person who believes what they sing. Um, one thing you got to notice about God and about how people talk about God throughout all of Scripture is there are times where people give God a name. Um, Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. Uh, in the Psalms, this happens quite a bit where you have people who will say, the Lord is my shepherd or the Lord is my refuge. And most of the time when God is given a name throughout Scripture, it's a human being who is giving that name to God. But there are times... Not many of them, but there are times where God gives Himself a name. So in the, uh, Exodus uh, chapter 3 at the burning bush, Moses is like, who do, who do I tell people you are? And God says, here's what you tell them. You tell them, I am who I am. God gives Himself a name. I am who I will be. I am. And all, it's almost like God says, look, you can't even fill in the blank of what I am because I'm so big and I'm so great. But one thing you notice throughout Scripture is that everyone comes back to this idea of God calling Himself the Great I Am. Throughout the Old Testament you have it, you get into the New Testament, and now Jesus begins to take this on Himself. I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd. In Revelation it's Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And here's what I think is such good news for us, if we believe it to the core of who we are. That God is still the Great I Am. And at no point in history has God ever become the Great I Was. And at no point in history has God ever become the great I will be again one day. He still is the great I am. And so it's not, when we, when we get together and we talk about how we're engaging in the work of God in the world, it's not just telling people about what God used to do or what God will do. We need language of what God is doing in the here and now. Uh, there, there's this time where God is given the name Yahweh Shalom. <clears throat> the God is peace. How many of you are in need of some peace in your life today? Right? Some peace in your ministry? Some peace in your family? And it's in the story of Gideon. You remember this story? Where Gideon is about to go to battle and there are tens of thousands of people with Gideon. Uh, and, and it's God who says, you got too many people to fight. So here's how you need to sin. Here's how you need to determine. Here's how we need to shrink this army. If anyone is terrified... If anyone's a little scared, just send them home. I don't need people who have fear in their heart. And a lot of people left. It shrinks to 10,000. And God says, still, we got too many. Have them go drink at the river. And if they drink one way, you send them home. If they drink another way, you keep them. And 9,700 drank one way and 300 drank another way. And God says, we're going to take the 300. Which I think is comforting to us because sometimes you probably feel that wherever your ministry is, wherever you are serving, you wish there were more people. And we pray that God will raise up the volunteer base and will raise up people who can serve alongside of you. But sometimes God takes 300 or God take, takes 12 and God can do amazing things with it. And in this story is where it's Gideon who builds this altar to the Lord. And it's the only time Yahweh Shalom is used throughout the Bible. And it's Gideon who says, 
I'm building an altar to the Lord because He is the God of peace. And right before Gideon does it, it's God who says to him, to Gideon, God says, Peace be to you. Do not fear, which is the command you see show up more than any other command in Scripture. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. I teach my boys this. When they go to bed at night, and they're afraid of the dark, or they're afraid of monsters, and sometimes they say they're afraid because they just want to stay up later. But what we teach them, what my, my wife and I teach them is, boys, what does God say more than any other command in Scripture? And they can repeat it to us. Do not be afraid. He says, Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and he called God, The Lord is peace. But here's what I think is interesting for us. Which comes first? Gideon going out to fight with 300 people and God wins the battle for them? Or Gideon building the altar and calls God the God of peace? And the answer is that before the fight is when Gideon builds an altar and calls God Yahweh Shalom. Now the way it often works is we want to go through the fight, right, through the grind, through whatever struggle we're in, to get to the place where we can live into the peace of God. But the way it works with Gideon is you declare that God is the peace of my life. And it's God is the one who is the peace and brings the peace. It's going to give me the strength to enter into whatever grind it is, into whatever the fight may be. And we need that peace to be established. In order for God to establish His peace inside of us, we've got to take some time to be with God so that He can have the space to fill it with Himself. Uh, There's a lot of stress that goes on throughout all of the Bible. There's stress in the New Testament. People's lives are on the line. There's stress in your life. Yet there's a promise that the God of peace and the peace that God brings, this is more than a destination. It's more than a gas station where you get filled up. It, It meets you where you are. I love in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where it says, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. And the way God says it, the way Paul says it is whenever it comes to crushing Satan under your feet, he's talking to the church as if the church is going to get a foot. You're going to get a stomp in on this. Aren't you ready for that? The shalom of God. Because when it comes to peace, everybody's for it. Napoleon was for it. Hitler was for it. But it meant they were going to kill people to get it. Eastern religions are for it. Sometimes the peace that we desire is when we put the kids down, there's peace. Or when the neighbor will stop playing loud music, there'll be peace. But the peace that God brings is a shalom, which is about wholeness and completeness and soundness and health and safety. And this is the peace we crave. It's not the peace that comes from Rome, and it's not the peace that the world talks about. It's a peace that fills our hearts. And the way God spreads His peace is mostly through His people through what you do, through how you serve. Uh, I was doing some research for a sermon series in a, in a book I'm currently trying to write. This research started a couple of years ago because I was about to preach a sermon on Jesus being the light of the world, and I was just interested in the places in the world that go a long time without seeing the sun, so places above the Arctic Circle. Because I had heard these places that go without seeing the light, that depression rates can be high and suicide attempts can be high. So I was just interested in this. So I started doing research one day and I came across a town called Barrow, Alaska. It's the northernmost town in the United States, the very top of Alaska. And I started doing research on these towns above the Arctic Circle. And and, and what you find is that 10% of Americans, no matter where you live, 10% of us suffer from SADS disease, seasonal affective disorder. 
Right here in Memphis, when we go nine or ten days in the wintertime where people don't see the sun and it's cloudy, they come to me and they're like, I'm going into a funk. I need the sun. And can you imagine living in some of these places where they go 65 days every winter without seeing the sun? Temperatures below zero. There may be a little twilight every day, but no sun from around November 20th until around January 23rd or 24th. No sun. And as I was doing this research, what blew me away is what they have found is that there's actually a peak season in many of these towns and cities above the Arctic Circle. There's a peak season for suicide attempts and for depression rates. And it's not during the season of darkness. I would have put my money on the fact that it would have been. It's when the sun comes back. It's when they see the light again. And what their research showed is that the problem that people struggle with, it is a problem of re-entry. That they've been in the dark for 65 days and when the sun comes back, their mind is still a little slower. They're at a slower pace. And their body's trying to catch up. And things are changing. And, and the, this, there's this struggle with re-entry. So I was so interested in this, I took a trip up to Barrow last year. I'm a dude who's lived my whole life in Texas and in Memphis. I have never experienced temperatures below zero. When I arrived in Barrow, it was negative 28. The coldest day was negative 65 wind chill. My eyelashes froze to my toboggan. When I went there, I was warned. I mean, I, there's no vegetation that grows there. Trees don't go. Grass doesn't grow. There are only two kinds of animals. You got polar bears. And you got caribou. And you're warned about polar bears. Any building I went in down around there in Barrow, you're, there, there's signs of what do you do when a, when a polar bear approaches. And it tells you how if it's, uh, you know, within a few, uh, if, if there's a distance in between you, how you get away. And then there's one thing you do if it, if it attacks. And the only bullet point was defend yourself. As if you're going to die, just try to get a punch in, all right? And I got there at 11 o'clock in the morning. It was dark outside. I checked into the hotel. I was hungry. They told me, you can walk two blocks. So I put all my gear on. I walked to this place. And when I was walking back from this restaurant, I have this fear of polar bear in me. Because it's dark outside. And out of nowhere, I could see out of my peripheral vision. I mean, I had my, my mask up to my eyes, down below my eyes, a, a toboggan coming down low. So I couldn't see very well. But I could see a big white furry polar bear running to me from my right. Now you may think somebody who was wearing as much gear as I could, as I was in that moment, that I could not run the same 40 time that I could run back in high school, but you were wrong. <laughs> I was running down that road as fast as I could, my heart racing, thinking my life was over, and I turned around to see it was one of those big white fluffy dogs that pull sleds up in Alaska. <laughs> but for me that day, it was a polar bear. And I, and I took a guy with me who shot a lot of film, and we shot testimonies, and I sat down with a counselor at the high school. And he said, Josh, here's the reason that I feel some depression entering into me every time that we see the sun again. He says that for 65 days you've been in the darkness, and for those who've been there for a long time, their bodies are kind of used to it. There's a rhythm to life. 
But he said, the reason I feel some depression sinking into me is that you expect that when the light comes back that it's going to bring change. That after 65 days of ice and snow and cold and darkness, you expect that when you see the sun and when there is light, that everything's going to be different. But when the sun comes back, the elements get worse. It gets colder. The ice and snow continue to fall. And the elements remain. Now, does that not preach in whatever context you are in? That you expect that salvation in Jesus or a change of heart or a a better understanding of what it means to live in the light, that it's going to bring change. But what do we do when all of these elements around us, they don't change? How do we engage the elements? How do we we teach people to engage the elements? So when I first came to Memphis, I, I wanted to get to know the good, the bad, the ugly. I wanted to see... I just wanted to see what was happening in neighborhoods all over the place. I would do ride-alongs with fire departments. I would go on prayer drives or I would just drive through neighborhoods praying the power of the resurrection over people I saw. And I did, a, 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 I did one ride-along with an undercover cop one Friday night. One of the coolest experiences of my life. He said, hey man, we need to take your car. We're not going to take mine. I was driving a 1995 Ford Ranger. It had been in my family for 17 years. It died two years ago. We don't talk about that, all right? So we got in my truck and we drove around and he was showing me just all kinds of stuff throughout the city. And he said, man, there's one guy I need to go talk to. His name was James and they were holding a few... um, they were holding a few charges over James because at the time, James was helping solve cases for the Memphis Police Department. Within a few weeks, James had solved three murder cases. He was given tips of where these pills were being taken from pharmacies. So we went and we hung out with James for a little while. And, and he had some work to do with James, so I, I kind of overheard their conversation. And then James and I were sitting around my truck and we're just having a conversation about life and about brokenness and about Memphis and about his childhood. He stole a car for the first time when he was 16. And he said, Josh, it was like a drug. For the next 16 years of his life, he became a notorious criminal. He's, he's now doing about 20 years of time. And I looked at James and I said, man, uh, tonight we're going to be going throughout Memphis. And dude, is my truck going to be safe? At the time, I was about 15 years old. He looked at my truck and he looked at me and he said, Josh, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but ain't nobody going to touch your truck. <clears throat> he said, man, you can leave the keys in that thing. and I don't think anybody's going to touch it. He said, if you leave your wallet out, uh, you know, me or my buddies will take your wallet, but I'm not going to take, take your truck. <clears throat> I said, James, I've got to ask you one question, man. I, I've heard that 66% of the inmates down at 201 Poplar, that this is at least their sixth time to be in there. So why, would, why do people, why are they set free only to make decisions to send them right back into bondage? And he took a few moments where he just looked down at the ground and then he looked up at me and he said, Josh, I guess when it comes down to it, me and some of my friends don't know what it's like to be free. And I looked back at him and I said, man, I think I preach in front of people every Sunday who would say the same thing. Maybe a different form of bondage. But that we don't know how to be free. Whatever it is, it holds us in bondage. Let me give you uh, <clears throat> just a few nuggets as I end my time. Because I know I'm speaking in front of people who I, I believe you're some of our heroes. You, were, you believe in what you do. It's hard work. It's stressful work. Yet God is using, here, here are a few nuggets I <clears throat> just want to encourage you with. Number one, 
I'm asking you to trust your spiritual disciplines. And I need people to speak this into my life because sometimes when I get caught up in the stress of life and I begin carrying burdens, sometimes that are of God and sometimes that are not, sometimes when I get caught up in the busyness of life, the thing that shrinks is the very thing that connects me to the heart of God. And we want fruit in our work sometimes without the roots that it takes to develop the fruit. So trust the disciplines that connect you with God. Number two, realize this, that we do not take God into the world as much as we join God in the world. And I've learned this in the neighborhood that we live in. We've moved into a more underprivileged community in Memphis, and there were people when we first moved who came up and said, oh, you're taking God to that place. And our response was, there are people in our neighborhood who have a deeper love for Jesus than we've ever had. They take better care of us, and we take care of them. And I think all of us would testify in this room that it's not God who is outside of prisons and jails and hopefully He can get in. It's God who's roaming hallways. It's God who's on the move. And we don't take Him as much as we join Him. Number three, I want to encourage you to live for one well done. Because the only well done that matters is the well done that comes from God. It's the well done, my good and faithful servant. And I don't know about you, I live for dozens of well dones. I like well dones. And I'm almost hesitant to even tell you that because now people aren't going to come up and say, good job this morning, young man. But there's only one well done that matters and it comes from God. And lastly, I want to encourage you with this, to live from the blessing of God. Don't live for the blessing of God. There's a big difference in that. You don't live for the blessing, you live from it. The first thing God does in creation when He creates human beings, the first thing He does is not ask them to multiply and it is not ask them to take care of His creation. The first thing God does is He blesses them. The first thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount before He begins giving challenges and teaches people how to pray and talks about possessions, the first word in the Sermon on the Mount is blessed. And before you engage in the work of the kingdom around you, however God is inviting you to engage in what He is doing, Realize we live from that blessing. We don't live for it. It's not something you earn. It's something God graciously gives. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? For God in this place, over my friends in this room, most of them I I don't know. I don't know their name. I don't know their story. I just know they have been created by you and they are loved by the God of the universe. And God, I don't know where you need to declare your peace in the hearts and lives of people in this room, but I pray that you will rain that down upon them. That you will press out every form of unhealthy stress, the burdens that people are carrying in this room that they should not be carrying. Release them of that and fill them with your shalom. God, give us vision for how the kingdom of God is breaking out all around us. And don't just give us vision, but give us courage to live into that vision. And God, through the people in this room and through your people throughout our towns and cities, may we not be people who attempt to play it safe in life or to shrink into a shell. May we be people who pray with boldness for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that in heaven it is a pain-free zone, a cancer-free zone, a sin-free zone. And will you send forth some deposits of that into our present day? 
Open up the hearts of my friends in this room to receive today from you. Teach us, guide us, fill us with your Holy Spirit and with your power. Through Christ we pray. Amen.